there, lovely, lovely people. Welcome to Fuds on Film. This is our intermission episode for December. It's our last of this terrible, terrible year of 2018. Uh, but we've got a good mix of films here, some of which are actually good, which will make us happy, given the rest of the year has largely failed to do so. Films <laughs> accepted, of course. And we will, in fact, discuss why people are like ferrets. More of which later. <laughs> I'm Drew. With me tonight, Mr. Scott Morris. Well, hello there. And that boy, Craig. Hello. I can't think of any quotes today. <laughs> What's that quote from? <laughs> <laughs> ah, the greatest trick I ever pulled. <laughs> and you saw right through it. Well, I guess we just start then. That's generally how we do these things. Uh, we're not going to break any new ground tonight in our format. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It'll be difficult to come up with a format that doesn't involve starting at some point, though. So if you can't manage that, it'll be... We've got great ambitions of being really, really avant-garde, but it's quite hard to... Unless we just do, like, the John Cage episode, and it's um, four minutes 33 of silence for each film we talk about. uh, So, first up, then, we have Rocky 74... Uh, more or less what we're up to, I think. Uh, a conservative <laughs> estimate, yeah. <laughs> Technically, a Rocky spin-off, not a Rocky film, but basically it's a Rocky film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got Rocky uh, in it, so it seems, to, yes. seems legit. Yes. Every, everybody um, talks about how it's revitalised the Rocky franchise, so... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, with the exception of Rocky V, it's more or less the same as all the other Rocky films, to a greater or lesser degree. To which end, there isn't a great deal to say about Creed 2, a sequel to, well, Creed and, obviously, Rocky 1 through 4 and Rocky Balboa. Uh, is there, is like, I'm going to, sorry, I'm just going to guess, I'm going to go out on a limb because I haven't seen it yet. Is there a young punchy man who wants to punch is. another man and at least yes. one other man says, don't punch that man, he'll punch you harder, you can't punch him enough. And the other man says, enough, I'm going to punch him my way. And against all odds... He is the better of the two punchy men and does punch the man more than the other man punches him. <laughs> yeah. And um, then everybody so goes, next every, everybody goes, gonna fly now! At the end. <laughs> yes. The only thing you, you failed to mention, uh, Craig, is the uh, training montage. Oh, God! In which case we can move on to our next film, Scott. Uh, I'm not even joking. There's absolutely Craig has covered without even seeing the film has covered it perfectly. Exactly what happens. Get um, in. The only slight twist in Creed Two is that it is a sequel, or more directly a sequel to Rocky Four, in which Dolph Lundgren's even Drago killed Creed's father Apollo Creed, and then was beaten up by Rocky. In this case, it's because, despite being, you know, drugged up and things by the Soviet Union, when he lost to Rocky, apparently he lost everything, including his terrifying wife, Bridget Nielsen, was kicked out of Russia, had to live in Kiev in Ukraine. Wow, and, and Rocky punched him out of a country. Yes. <laughs> and a family. You know, he was a real, a, a real bruiser, Rocky. And you didn't really realise what stopping power he had. Um, Man alive. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the twist is this time that it's even Drago's son who's uh, going to fight Rocky. He's, well, he has a bit of a chip in his shoulder, to say the least. <laughs> um, he blames Rocky for beating him in a sport that's all about one person beating the other or not, you know. But, but, <laughs> let's set aside, you know. Um, Mr. Gorbachev, take the chip off this man's shoulder. <laughs> Somehow, 
Ethan Drago's son has, who is a monstrous looking fellow. Um, uh, so the matchup between him and Michael B. Jordan's Adonis Creed doesn't really work because he's twice the size of him. In <laughs> films, let's not get into that. Um, oh no, it sounds like he probably has a big punch. <laughs> he does. In fact, perhaps he will break him. Oh. And yes, they do use that line. He's apparently become a heavyweight challenger despite the fact the current heavyweight champion has never heard of him. Because I, I believe people in a sport like that don't pay any attention to the other comp- potential competitors. Mm. Again, look, I'm picking this snip. Despite, you know, it's, it's an okay film. There is so little to say about it though, because you've seen this film seven times before just in this series. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's entertaining enough. It's not Adonis, sorry, um, what's his name? Creed, the first Creed film, actually was a pretty interesting because there was a little bit of a twist in the Rocky formula, um, slightly different as Rocky is the mentor and also Rocky was had cancer at the time. There was sort of an interesting dynamic there. A lot of that is in Creed 2, but just it's a bit more formulaic. It's gone back to traditional Rocky things of, you know, start of the film, loses a fight, end of the film. Well, will he win the fight or will he not? Um, I'll let you work that out for yourself but uh, given that Rocky 1 and Rocky Balboa had people not winning the fight and then all the other ones winning I'm going to let you guess which one, which way this one went <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean I really I'm, I'm witty here because there's nothing more to say about it you've seen these films quite a lot I mean it's enjoyable enough there's just absolutely nothing special about it and the first Creed had that little extra that just made it a bit more enjoyable the only real issue I have is Michael B. Jordan has received lots and lots of praise in the last when's Fruitvale Station was that 2011 maybe a couple of years after yeah there are thereabouts last six or seven years I think um, and you know let, let's set aside the terrible Fantastic Four film but uh, well all of the Fantastic Four but particularly one he's in and mm. Uh, I mean, I don't quite think he's as good as a lot of people seem to think he is. But still, he's generally pretty watchable. The only problem is, and it's more... I'd say it's more of an issue of the writing of this film rather than his performance, actually. Just that for most of the film, he's a bit of a sullen git. And that would be okay if they didn't have specifically... It bothered me from the beginning of the film. If they didn't specifically have sections in this film where they have the commentators on the match saying... He really is Apollo Creed's son. He's this great showman. Um, and if you remember, Carl Weathers playing Apollo Creed in the first three Rocky films and the start of Rocky Four as well. You know, he's he's uh, he's geeing up the crowd. He's dancing about. He's putting on a big show. He has uh, charisma. He does. Um, which is not to say Michael B. Jordan doesn't have charisma, but it's his character in this. Mm-hmm. Not so much, because, <laughs> to say, while the, the actual commentators you're seeing this box match, the HBO commentators are saying this thing while he's standing pretty much stock still next to the ropes with a hood over his head and a sullen look in his face. <laughs> do, do you not understand how this doesn't match up with what you're saying? <laughs> like, he's a great showman like his father and he's basically just... Um, Fake news, Drew. <laughs> Grump, grumpy McGee, you know. It's what, what you, we, we, if you have established nothing else over the last two years, it's that what you're seeing with your eyes is, <laughs> is irrelevant. Oh, well, HBO is media, right? So therefore, they're mm. they're lying and they're quite popular. So that makes them mainstream media. Um, yes, but we're getting back into the terrible, terrible 2018 again. All right, can we not do that? Can we just talk mm. about films instead, please? Uh, yeah, look, it's it is a rocky film. 
and it's not Rocky Five. That's all you need to know. I suppose the important question is, does Mr T have any kids? <laughs> so the next song is him against Clubber Lang. Clubber yeah. Lang's progeny. Um, it's if you enjoyed the other Rocky films, apart from Rocky Five, if you enjoyed Rocky Five, for, uh, uh, seek help. Uh, yeah, if you enjoyed the other Rocky films, you're likely to enjoy this. Uh, it's just in pretty much any way you can think of unremarkable. Creed uh, baffled me because I thought, yeah, it's perfectly acceptable. Um, but I was somewhat taken aback by the critical praise which was heaped on it. And the Oscar the, nomination yes, was for the Sylvester number of Stallone. people talking about Sylvester Stallone's Oscar worthy performance and his nomination, uh, which I just did not see. And the number of people who have seen this film now who are saying, yes, another great Rocky film. Surely Sylvester Stallone won't be snubbed this time around. I don't think he was snubbed the last time around. I have no idea how he got in on that ticket whatsoever um, I have every intention however of watching this movie at some point purely on the basis of that line that you mentioned Drew from the trailer at the point at the point at which Ivan Drago says my son is going to break your boy I'm in <laughs> I'm in. Take my, take my money. I haven't had time to go and see it in the cinema. But as soon as it's out on demand, take my money. I'll watch yeah. it. I mean, we've, this is a, a common theme for us, and it has been for years. Like, I generally think the the Oscars are bunk. Uh, they, they don't reward anything like the best stuff most years. And it's the best I thought in the first Creed, it was one of his better performances. Rocky's always been his best role. Yeah. Um, I thought there was some emotion to it. It was quite a touching role. But like one of the five best performances of the year, nope, no, not even close, not uh, by a long margin. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's fine. This it's not great. It's fine. You're going to enjoy if you've enjoyed other films. Um, it's probably too long, but at least fifteen minutes, if not close to half an hour. But that's every film seems to be yeah. like that nowadays. Well, I was going to say, I think that's going to be a recurring theme yeah. tonight. Certainly, <laughs> yeah. the stuff I've watched. But it's it's fine. Just when you're mentioned about even Drago again, Craig. So what I meant to mention the one nice thing I think is that with it having gone on for so long this franchise and I can't think of many that are longer there's this Star Wars James Bond's alongst them all there aren't that many film franchises that have lasted this long 40 years now more mm. than 40 years mm-hmm. uh, so it does have that history so it is nice when you can have that when so it's now even drag goes the father with a son and can make a reference to a film from like 1980 Rocky Forest 1986 1987 something like that it's like three decades ago but you, so there's photographs of the wall in Rocky's restaurant that call back to that there are dialogue bits that call back to that it's kind of nice because it's almost like a, a shared history I was going to say it sounds like it's got a sort of nice familial kind of yeah, vibe exactly. to it that, so, yeah, yeah. So it's a shared viewership, a shared history, a family history. So there are wee, wee hints like that. And that's quite nice. And the, the film actually has the ability to do that and does it without being too kind of, look, look here, look here's the reference, here's the reference, pay attention to the reference. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just as soon as you know that stuff already. Yeah, I mean, because it doesn't, I don't even think there's any more than maybe like a couple of flashbacks. There's not any like archive footage from Rocky Four in it. So it doesn't even do that, which is quite nice. It just relies on people familiar with it. And if you aren't really familiar with it, then it you doesn't you don't lose anything. But again, yeah, it's it's fine, and it sounds like I'm that with fate. I enjoyed it. It's just nothing special. And the praise that both it and Creed got are just completely over the top, disproportionate. Am I Bro. the only person that saw this? Then yes, cool. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, let's move on to something that I know at least two of us have seen. 
I think just the two of us though. And that's the Freddie Mercury Stroke Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, which Scott is going to introduce. Yes, uh, I suppose in a lot of ways I'm the exact target audience that Bohemian Rhapsody is aiming for. I'm not a Queen fan exactly, of next to no knowledge about the band or the personalities that make up the band, barring perhaps the tabloid sensationalism surrounding Freddie Mercury's untimely death from AIDS complications. However, like I think most people, should one of their songs wander across my path, I'll happily nod along to it, the band having pulled off a remarkable trick of creating a very broad appeal for some very weird songs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd been turned off from this film, from the general critical response that it got, um, it, that being that it's a, a, a rather neutered look at Queen and Mercury, allegedly also the reason that Sasha Baron Cohen walked from the production some years back. And it's true that in this place we have young Rami Malek and a rather more PG orientated take on the characters and activities involved, yet audiences love this, raking in all of the money at the box office, so broad appeal yet again. And you know what? Both groups are right. I'm not going to recount much of the film, it starts with a young, slightly unsure of himself, Freddie, on the cusp of remoulding himself as the entertainer he became, meeting with Brian May and Roger Taylor, their band having just lost their lead singer, and joining up alongside bassist John Deacon to ultimately become the band we know, and it quickly skips forward to their initial success, their eventual tensions, Mercury's estrangement and solo career, his tumultuous personal life in his later years, and their reconciliation and legendary Live Aid performance. But what's an old documentary this is not, and I take pretty much everything here with a generous dose of salt. Everyone's lovely in this film, barring one villain who may as well be twirling his moustache, and <laughs> even the arguments are almost unreasonably polite. Well, it's a British band, I suppose. Watching it with a critical eye, uh, there's many moments that you wish had been explored in much more depth and could sustain a film by themselves. But if you can restrict yourself to the film that's actually been made, as opposed to the one you can imagine, you're left with a perhaps too glossily presented, but very well crafted, hugely enjoyable anthem, and perhaps that sums up Queen as well as anything more in-depth ever could. There's number of very good performances in here from the other members of Queen, uh, Gwylin Lee, Ben Hardy and Joe Mazzello, to Aidan Gillen's manager uh, and Tom Hollander's lawyer character, but Rami Malek's extraordinary turn as Mercury eclipses them all. Again, not a bad summation of Queen. It perhaps goes on a touch too long, but again... Not a bad summation of Queen. <laughs> it is not, by a number of metrics, a good biographical film. It is, however, a greatly entertaining one, and not every film needs to be a harrowing nightmare reflecting the harrowing nightmare of 2018's reality. <laughs> a visit to Freddy's world is a very welcome respite in these troubled times, and well, perhaps one not one I'm ever likely to revisit, Bohemian Rhapsody is one of the most enjoyable cinematic experiences I've had this year, which surprised me greatly. Um, I was quite happy walking out of this and uh, yeah it's it's quite a crowd-pleasing film not in any way one that's going to please any critics and there's one you'll probably need to turn off any investigative faculties you may have that i don't believe for a second this is anything close to the reality of anyone's situation in it but it's a fun story and i enjoyed it uh, you're not buying the scenes with um <laughs> Mike Myers being persuaded into <laughs> letting them release Bohemian Rhapsody. No, not at all. <laughs> that, that that had such a ring of truthiness to those. The minds, the mind boggles. Yeah. Well, I kind of like that. I mean, they had uh, Mike Myers cast as their manager or the executive of the record company, mm. um, basically so they could have him to deliver the line. Nobody, people, young people want rock songs that they can bang their head to in a car. Nobody's going to do that to Bohemian Rhapsody, simply because oh, he did it in Wayne's World. But he's fine, it's, um, it's a small it's just, though, but um, potentially a little bit forced, but still, it's kind of fun. It's not, because it's not such a serious film, it's got a saying that it's no. not 
that well, I, think, I think the trailer tells you that. Yeah, yeah. even even the trailer gives the uh, the impression that this is far. <laughs> this is it's like a teen crumpets version of rock and roll music. Yeah, most, it's close, most bizarre. It, it's closer to Mamma Mia than it is any sort of serious uh, <laughs> biographical enterprise. But people seem to have lapped up, and I I will certainly again catch up with it. I had had no interest in this film at all, but I I love Queen. I, I'm. I remember having their Greatest Hits 2 video as a kid and just watching the, the videos, um, some of which are some of which are still brilliant, but some of which had a very kind of 1980s British low-budget crappiness to them now, you look back. Yeah. But uh, they're thoroughly entertaining and always aware of just how... of just what a good showman Freddie Mercury was. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of energy you could bring to performance, the way you could work a room, so I just said Freddie Mercury, and I loved his voice, always did. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know much about the band or any conflict or anything, um, and don't care. Never yes. care, don't <laughs> care now. Uh, and I never have. And for things like, for instance, film in particular, I'm very different, but with music, I've never, as a general rule, there are exceptions, but as a general, simply never given a crap about the band. Um, Lots of my favourite bands, I have no idea even the names of most of the people in them because mm. I don't care. It's like, do I like this music? Yes, there we go. I'll listen to it. I, I don't. I honestly, I don't know the name of the drummers in lots of bands or um, things like that. So for that reason, uh, didn't know much about Queen Freddie Mercury story. Never cared. Had no interest in this film. However, I am thoroughly glad I watched it because it's really entertaining. Mm. Um, I think I've had a similar experience to you, Scott, because yes. It's so manufactured, it's so... I was going to say anodyne, which isn't... I know, it's so neutered, though. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a very kind of family-friendly um, approach to a lot of it. There's certainly a lot to be enjoyed from the performances. Uh, the ca- the actors cast to be Brian May and John Deacon in particular look remarkably like them. Yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, you know, they do a good performance as well. Rami Malek is great. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really good performance as Freddie Mercury. It's really entertaining, even though a lot of the stuff is flight of fancy, to put it mildly. Uh, and, yeah, acting-wise, I think the only other bum, though, is Aidan Gillen's, you know, patented use of 72 accents in any given scene that he's in. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's still entertaining, and the musical sections are, especially when you're watching a cinema through a cinema sound system, they were thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, I, I could have sat and watched that whole band aid section, or sorry, live aid section at the end repeatedly because it was yeah. just so entertaining. Yeah. Again, on that on a huge screen with the proper high quality cinema sound system, it's just really entertaining. But most of the musical sections were. And it's just a joy here. And it's like, oh, right, I noticed this song. I love this song. It's great. Ah, oh, it's We Are the Champions. Brilliant. And it's, uh, yeah, it's in terms of the actual content, it's probably complete. Uh, Bull crap, but <laughs> it's entertaining and that's enough. So if you've if you like the music of Queen at all, I really think you're going to get a lot from this film. Yeah, I'm glad about that. For some reason, I kind of thought we might get into a fight about this. You come out and say, "Oh, it's absolutely garbage," but I'm I'm, I'm thankful that it's uh, that it is actually broadly entertaining. It's no, yeah, yeah, as it's, long as you take it for what it is. As long as you don't go in expecting it to be like a yeah. hard-hitting documentary, yeah. then you're Jour- journalism. Yeah. It is not, but yeah. um, thoroughly entertaining. It absolutely is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. We're going to go to yet another sequel again because, well, you know, sequels, that's that's film nowadays, apparently. One of which I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but back in 2012, I think, 
Disney Animation, which is always the lesser brother to Pixar, came out with Wreck-It Ralph. And it was... Oh, right. Um, I actually liked it much more on a second view than I had done the first time. remember thinking that it kind of used the the framework of uh, computers and video games a little to tell a fairly standard story. On a, um, on subsequent views, I thought it used the framework of computer and video games a little bit more to tell a very, very you know ordinary <laughs> um, generic story. But John C. Riley was entertaining and it was quite fun. And it was all right. And its sequel, Ralph Breaks the Internet, was all right. There we go. I'm <laughs> uh, well, starting to say anything more about it. You know, the story this time is that Sarah Silverman's Vanellope wants to kind of spread her wings a bit. It's an incredibly innocent friendship in a way it's pretty, but it still feels kind of weird that it's this effect because the video game cartridge is what makes it innocent but the small girl this large adult man are best friends and want to spend all the time together but it's um there isn't anything creepy about it it's just like if you pay any thought to it at all it just seems inappropriate but again talking video game characters so maybe not worth delving too much into but yeah she wants to kind of spread her wings and discovers the well the two of them discover the internet um, after Ralph's attempts to help Vanellope become more, uh, have something less boring to do in a racing game, causes the racing game to break and it's going to be turned off. So they need to find a part, which they're going to do by going to the internet and buying it despite not having a corporeal. Yeah, you know, don't think about it. Don't think <laughs> about it. Don't think about it. It's not a good idea. Uh, and they go into the internet and she discovers this other online racing game it's a bit gta a bit centro and a bit you know a motor storm or something like that um which she wants to join in um and makes ralph sad and he goes away to be sad because he's a sad man because he's sad and then things go bad between them and then they make it up because this is a disney film and disney doesn't do original stories really for the most part so, and I'm, again, once again, I'm wondering, I didn't prepare specifically because it didn't deserve it, because it's quite similar to the first film with added internet bits. The real problem is that while the first film had lots of references to games and brand names and stuff, but it made sense because it was set in a video game arcade and had lots of references to these video games and stuff that made sense. So when you're seeing Capcom and Nintendo and Sega, then all these other, like, Pac-Man and different game names and stuff. It made sense. But here, the whole thing's basically a giant advert, which I knew from the trailers it was going to be, but it's, it's so horrible. They go into the internet and basically it's brand names everywhere. There's Google and YouTube and eBay and Facebook, a, a thousand other brand names. It's basically 90 minutes of advertising, mm. and it's really really wearing and yes and the film's all right and it ends <laughs> that's I, I, there's nothing again if you enjoyed the first film i think you're going to enjoy this um if you didn't enjoy the first film there's nothing's going to change your mind because it's it's not that dissimilar from it yeah it's all right <laughs> so i've just got no enthusiasm about this film at all i saw it i saw it and it's like yeah i don't particularly regret seeing that but it's not special and i saw it the same day i saw bohemian rhapsody and one mm-hmm. of those films is fantastic well <laughs> thoroughly entertaining anyway the other one was yeah okay <laughs> mm. so yes um, disney animation continues to be the the poor cousin to pixar yeah i, I might get to this i thought of, 
in much the same boat. I thought the first film was all right, but yeah, the trailer made this look like one like product placement in the movie, and uh, yeah, didn't it is, d- it's, d- it's, didn't didn't feel very attractive to me. So yeah, because I mean, the scent like the the game that um, Vanellope wants to join is called Slaughter Race. <laughs> I've missed something entirely. It's that's entirely fictional, um, and the YouTube like thing is that you know, Ralph uses to get likes to earn money somehow. Um, is um, quick little YouTube, but not. Although they mm. do both, Google is in it and YouTube is mentioned. Um, so why they didn't just use YouTube, I have no idea. Since they clearly would have to clear things with Alphabet to use Google and YouTube anyway. Mm. But everything else is, yeah, it's product placement. It's really annoying um, because the main, or the most important feature in this film is eBay. Yeah. So they have to keep going to eBay and they get, there's a message from eBay comes to them that their, their payment is required for eBay. And here, let's go to be, back to eBay. Oh, we've got our money now. Let's go to eBay. And we're going to eBay because it's all about eBay and it's really, really <laughs> wearing. <laughs> so eBay out of 10 for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay then, Craig. True. The Coen brothers have Ooh. a new film. That they certainly they, do. In which they talk about people being like ferrets and, well, I'll let you tell everybody more about it, but can I just say that when I went to watch this film, I was not expecting the sash. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll that t- threw me. <laughs> we'll, we'll mention something of that section. Maybe maybe not <laughs> for the purposes of the sash, but yes. Interesting. Interesting. The latest from the Coen brothers, uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, comes to you courtesy of Netflix, which in retrospect seems a good fit for this slightly less commercial endeavour, uh, being an anthology sextet of short stories set among the American Old West. Fronted by Tim Blake Nelson as a self-proclaimed San Saba songbird himself, the first segment of Scruggs is by far and away the most engaging. The cautionary tale of an upbeat, archly pragmatic gunslinger with improbable aim (laughs) and a penchant for song. Now... I have to confess to being no great fan of Tim Blake Nelson's dramatic stylings. Indeed, I consider him to have almost single-handedly ruined Siriana for me in his mere moments of screen time. <laughs> with this in mind, I was not particularly looking forward to the Coen's latest, being as the scant marketing I had seen seemed to revolve entirely around his visage. <laughs> Imagine my surprise then, uh, when I found this to be by some margin the most enjoyable 20 minutes on offer, at times rivalling the Coen's best darkly comedic moments and setting a wonderful tone that I was eager to see sustained throughout the remaining five tales. That I was eager to see sustained. Eager. The second section, starring James Franco as a bank robber, shares some of the first segment's dark humour and engaging character, albeit somewhat diluted. Any fears that this particular story might not have sufficient steam to carry the necessary momentum are alleviated by it being the most brief, uh, and in the absence of any meaningful context or message, it does at least have the good grace to exit the building at a brisk pace. So far, so interesting. At this point, I was enjoying watching the Coens cut loose and having a bit of a play around. Sadly, the remainder of the sections are of very variable quality, lack almost any sense of humour, and at least two of them could stand to lose 25% of their runtime. Contrary to the opening tales, these segments offer little that is engaging beyond some admittedly wonderful individual performances, and in one instance, we watch Liam Neeson commit to film one of the most starkly cynical vignettes in human history. (laughs) Worst agent ever. (laughs) 
or perhaps most most literal agent ever. Uh, in particular, I found myself wishing I could spend more time with Bill Heck and Zoe Kazan in their incarnations from the fifth tale on offer. But again, we are treated to a resolution of sorts that callously deprives us of any such hope. Uh, the more I've thought about it over the last 24 hours, the odder this whole approach to the movie seems. In the absence of much traditional narrative, or for the most part levity, it feels at times as though the purpose here is to demonstrate just how well the Coens have mastered the art of character by callously disposing of them just as easily <laughs> as they appear to conjure them. Which is not to say that there's nothing to enjoy here. Again, as brief as the time we spend with them may be, there are some wonderful characters embodied in wonderful performances. And the comic moments that come are often as inspired as one could hope for. I'm just kind of worried that the point is... <laughs> I'm just kind of worried that the point of it all may be as downbeat as I fear it is, or that even worse, there may be no point at all. <laughs> I really enjoyed the Ballad Buster Shrugs, but I'm quite glad I didn't have to do any sort of thinking about an introduction for it, because <laughs> yes. I suspect that, that might have started to ruin it a little bit for me. As it is, it's going to go into the really enjoyable minor Coen Brothers canon for me, and I will never yep. watch this again. Nope. Um, I will happily have spent the two and a bit I think it is hours with it mm-hmm. and yes uh, I, I I enjoyed most of it I had a smile on my face I enjoyed the characters I got to the end of it well yes that was a thing I enjoyed it I'm never going to think about it again and perhaps that is the, the only way to approach it if you want to stay sane I don't believe there's much of a point to any of it no. it's just a nice little bunch of tales that I enjoyed the performances in and it looks lovely as well, of course. But you can—that's kind of table stakes for Cohen Brothers stuff, I think. Uh, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I mean, not it was a bit uneven in terms of how much I enjoyed mm. it. Certainly, I really enjoyed it, and I know there were lots of theories about what it's about. I'm not convinced I buy it. Although, I remember the first time I saw a serious man, and I thought, "Oh, is that it? I am disappointed." And then I found mm. out later because I wasn't really up in my Bible readings that it's meant to be the story of Job. And like with that structure and go back, like, oh, right, I get it now. Uh, so maybe there is something more to it there beyond simply, you know, cynically subverting expectations and what you'd expect to be like kind of happy endings or anything like mm. that for some of the stories. The Tim Blake Nelson thing is probably the most enjoyable section and the best showcase for the Cohen's amazing ability to write just insanely what ridiculous but also <laughs> awesome dialogue. Oh yes. Nobody writes dialogue like the Cohen yeah. brothers. There are there were at least three moments in that section where I laughed out loud and I yeah. was as happy as a clam and I never thought I would hear myself saying this, but I genuinely by the end of this, I genuinely just wished it had been ninety minutes of that of that character and Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah, well, I, I'm not put off by Tim Blake Nelson because what I immediately thought of when he appeared at the start of this film oh, brother. was Oh Brother We Are Out There, yeah, and he's fantastic in that. Um, when he's been in other films, I've not particularly liked or disliked him that I can recall. Maybe maybe in Minority Report he feels a bit out of place. Mm. But he's a kind of creepy guy in that and it sort of works, I guess. He's meant to be. But um, yeah, for yeah for that section, obviously I like you, Craig, laughing so much. Great performance, um, funny songs, and just uh, the Coen Brothers' dialogue's amazing. The Liam Neeson section, incredibly dark um, and cynical, <laughs> but, you know, believable. Um, my, my, my other half was genuinely offended by that section, and I kind of understand why. 
it's it's a bit of a gear change in terms of tone as well, uh, which is no doubt the intent. But well, coming as it does so after, after that second segment, which is obviously as bleak as you like, but had had the good grace to be humorous with it. <laughs> but yeah, when he when he looks at that rock, it's like, oh, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> oh, no, don't want this. Yeah. Uh, um, Stephen Root is always fantastic value. Um, also, another returning mm-hmm. person from Old Brother We Are Thou too, who mm-hmm. did a great performance in that. He's really fun in the James Franco section. The Tom Waits section, though, is it was probably the nicest looking. It was just it was yeah. gorgeous, gorgeous um, setting. Definitely, and, like, he's digging for some gold. Like, oh, oh, that happened. Is that it? Yeah. Well, I guess that's that. Se- that's that section then. Mm. Okay. Uh, so that's probably that was a low point. Was that sounds like. I don't know. I, 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 mean, I at least that. rooted for his character. I, I at least mm. was glad with the resolution of that. Even, oh yeah. Even even yeah, though I there's... thought there's literally no value in this as a piece of as a piece <laughs> of <laughs> film. Yes. Yeah, and and it needed to be ten, possibly fifteen minutes shorter than it was. Like that was that was five minutes that was five minutes of film stretched out to twenty twenty five minutes. No word of a lie. No point to that whatsoever. Yeah, um but the the section on the Oregon Trail too, that was I don't know, that's probably I think it's the longest section. Yes, it is. I actually it's probably the one I enjoyed second most. I just thought mm. the characters were interesting an interesting setting. That's um, it. They were super engaging. And um yeah. And your fellow, what? Sorry, what did I say his name was again? Um, he's got the most awesome name ever. Um, Bill Heck, Bill Heck's character, uh, and Zoe Kazan's, but especially Bill Heck's, such a such an interesting character, just affable. Yeah. I was just really, uh, and you know, in the in the midst of all these terribly sort of chauvinistic characters, and whatnot, he was a real sort of beacon of just decency and whatnot. I'm like, oh, I hope nothing terrible happens to this guy, and well, it doesn't, but well, it also <laughs> um, sort of does. It also sort of does, yeah. And that was frustrating because that I felt that there there was an entire film that could have been made there. Yeah, um, just weird. Yeah. So yeah, Matt, I think the idea behind this was originally it was meant to be a series rather than a film, wasn't it? Um, I keep reading conflicting reports of that because the Coens have said no. This is always the way it was meant to have been brought to you. But then every other every other piece of article I read on it suggests that yes, up until earlier this year, it was supposed to be an anthology TV series. So it I don't know. It was always going to be a trilogy. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, d- I, don't know who, I don't know who to believe. I don't know why the Coens would feel the need to lie, but there's enough um, differing opinion out there to suggest that. Maybe it's something though, like like that was always what they wanted to do, but it was all, Netflix were always, well, no, we'll do it if you do it. Is this way? Or maybe it's something like that. It's more like, not so well, much what was always going to be just like this is what they wanted this is what the people were giving the money wanted. ultimately I'm glad they got to do it this way because I don't think there's anything near enough there to have sustained a six part series no the running times are so sort of a couple of those sections place, start to feel interminable as they are never mind doubling or tripling the length of them I, I could have done to see a few more holes being dug <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah I, I really really enjoyed it I think I will watch this again but again I'll watch anything by the Coen Brothers again apart from the Lady Killers yeah. um, <laughs> which I did make the mistake of watching again last year I think it was the first time I'd seen it since it was in the cinema oh Oh, well, this is worse than I remember. No, but mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm going back to like just like yeah. Let's just write our own stuff again, you know, because that's how that works. Yeah. Listen, a couple of minutes either side of that Archimedean solution to the problem of Clancy Brown. Um, <laughs> that is that is some of the best cinema I've witnessed, and that is some of the most that is some of the most 
sort of refreshing and I don't know, just downright daft, just utterly enjoyable cinema that I watched in a long, long time. And I just, I just wish there had been more of that. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the ultimately I don't know what the purpose of this was. Not to say that everything has to have a purpose, but yeah. it, it feels like it feels like there ought to have been. The name threw me as well because I had, um, I knew the name, and I, again, I've been. It's not even worth effort. I've just been trying to avoid finding out pretty much anything about films at any point recently. Um, I only booked the tickets for Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse because I was aware there was a new Spider-Man film coming out um, and there was a preview of it at Cineworld to see it like a week early. I thought, oh, that looks good. And only after I booked the tickets, I was like, oh, wait, it's the animated one I've seen the trailer for. I was thinking it was the <laughs> new one. That, that's like next year, the year after with Tom Holland. Um, but that turned out to be serendipitous because that was fantastic, that film. Uh, this uh, didn't really know much. Like, the new Coen Brothers film, all I need to know. Right, I'm there. But the with it being called The Ballads of Buster Scrubs, I kind of thought it was all going to be about him. Or at least bookended with, yeah. Yeah, or like it's kind of like, like, like a storyteller. Yeah, it would be I mean, a wee song in yeah. each one to introduce it. And I would have really enjoyed that because they did mm-hmm. such a good job with the songs in his section. Yeah. I actually would have liked that. Um, yeah, or I say a bookend, which is kind of what I was expecting. So the fact there wasn't actually more of Tim Blake Nelson is a wee bit of a disappointment. I just, I really enjoyed it because I love the Coen Brothers and there's not a lot they can do wrong for me. Um, again, Lady Killers aside. Yeah, I would say for all my sort of niggles that we're bringing up here, I still really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. and oh, it's, it's definitely it's, worth it's, watching. Yeah, it's... It, it's not. It's not the best film I've seen this year, but it's, it's in the running for being one of the most entertaining films that I've seen this year, um, along with a few others on this podcast uh, that we'll get to. But so it's it's definitely well worth seeing. It's not going to change anyone's life, and as I say, I don't think I'm really going to go back to it at any point. But yeah, hugely yeah. enjoyed my time with it. If they want to do this sort of thing for net and just muck about for Netflix every couple of years or something, that's mm. fine. I, I'm in. I think yes. just when you're when you're dealing with a body of work such as theirs, this like you say, Scott, this definitely you have to you have to understand before you go in that this is definitely going to fall into the minor category as you as you so rightly state um mm. don't don't go expecting no country for old men or fargo again because you ain't going to get it <laughs> uh, although although there are glimpses of that in it which is i think perhaps the most frustrating thing even though this is the mucking about even while they're mucking about they still come out with some, <laughs> of, the, some of the best work ever you just kind of want them to pick that ball up and run with it <laughs> rather than yep. what it is that they were doing whatever the hell that was but Yes, a curio. I don't think I shall probably ever go back and watch it again. If if it is, it will be for the first segment probably. Um, or if they if they want to go back and revisit the the tale of uh, Bill Heck and Zoe Kazan, uh, I'm on board for that as a movie. To be honest with you, but um, yes. Okay, so let's move on to another film with Liam Neeson Scott, um, which is Widows, um, about which I know absolutely nothing. So I hope you can fill us all in. <laughs> That's my job. The trailer for Widows made it out to appear like one of the most generic heist plots imaginable, with perhaps the exception of the gender expectation. But when it goes on to say, directed by Steve McQueen, well, now it has my attention. Viola Davis's mild-mannered teacher Veronica Rowling's life is flipped, turned upside down when her husband and career thief, said Liam Neeson, Harry, and his crew are killed in a botched heist attempt against what turns out to be a dangerous crime lord. This comes back to bite Veronica when said crime lord, Brian Tyree Henry's Jamal Manning, and his disturbing enforcer brother Jitem, played by Daniel Kaluuya, uh, decide that Veronica is on the hook for the $2 million that Harry robbed from them. Seeking a way to raise the money before they collect on her life, she discovers Harry's cache of heist plans, detailing one $5 million job that will strike at the heart of the city's corrupt council members. Although this is set in Chicago, so perhaps corrupt goes without saying. In particular, the elections for the aldermen that 
Colin Farrell's Jack Mulligan is fighting with Jamal Manning, uh, with Mulligan somewhat unwillingly looking to continue the political dynasty from his father Tom, Robert Duval's long-running stint. Needing a crew to carry out the plan, she approaches the widows of Harry's crew, Michelle Rodriguez's Linda Pirelli, whose seemingly successful apparel shop was repossessed to pay for her deadbeat husband's gambling debts, and Elizabeth DeBecky's Alice Gunner, initially at least something of a trophy wife who has had to turn to escorting to support herself. They also drafted in sometime babysitter come beautician Erivo's bell to the scheme, and they go about planning and executing the heist, the details of which are perhaps best left for a watcher to discover. Now, If I had a complaint about this film, it's perhaps that some of the B-plots, like the whole political corruption deal, felt like it could have done with more space to breathe and would perhaps have been better suited to a miniseries. So perhaps no surprise to see that this was in fact adapted from an 80s miniseries, a British Lindell plant joint that I'd previously never heard of, so no comment on that aspect. But thankfully, this is a script and a cast that can pack quite a lot of meaning into quite a few little nods and glances. This could perhaps open it up to being thought of as a slender plot skeleton with a lot hanging off of it, and perhaps, strictly speaking, that's correct, but when it's drowning in this much excellent character work, it's hard to be too upset about it. The leads are superb, with some real sense of character progression and many, many great uh, small moments and deft touches that show the quality of the cast and indeed McQueen, even from Michelle Rodriguez, which may surprise Drew. It does, Scott. (laughs) Is she angry in this film, though? Because I believe that's her character in every thing I've ever seen her in. To be fair, yes, at points she is angry, but (laughs) she has things to be angry about. Uh, the supporting cast are just as effective, from Daniel Kaluuya's menace to Pharrell and Duval's interplay or Garrett Dale Hunt's sympathetic turn as Rawlings driver come bodyguard. Uh, there's a lot of plot threads running through this, and while they don't perhaps tie together entirely to tapestry by the end, it's still a very attractive design that hangs together well enough to, I don't know, keep you warm with the character scarf. The metaphor is getting away from me a little bit, uh, but I like the film a lot, is what I'm getting at. It won't win any awards for the overall originality of the plot, for sure. In particular, there's a twist that's so obvious from the way a particular scene is shot that it may as well be written on your ticket. But (laughs) overall, this is a satisfyingly dense, chewy, premium film nougat that mixes brilliant character work with the genre fireworks better than any other film I've seen this year. It's one of the most enjoyable films of the year, not perhaps in the artsy pushing the boundaries of cinema way, but in terms of being a really fun way to spend a couple of hours, and that is more than enough for me. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't get to see this. Uh, I, I hadn't so much dismissed it as paid it very little attention as I saw. Some kind of interesting posters, actually, which mm. kind of struck me because interesting posters are a rarity nowadays. They tend to be so identical. But that interesting poster was the the cars on the spike. Mm. And I think I saw a bit of a trailer at one point, but beyond that, it's like, oh, it's a Liam Neeson action thriller thing. I feel I've probably seen this already. Yes. <laughs> and then you recommended it to me, and it's, oh, I would see that. And it's, oh, it's gone already. That, yeah. that didn't hang around long, which is a pity. I really quite fancy seeing that. And in fact, Steve McQueen's attached to it, which is potentially a bit of hit and miss because, well, shame. I do <laughs> not care for that film at all, but uh, a lot of other Steve McQueen stuff really good. So, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out when I can. I'm disappointed I couldn't do so now. Yes, I highly recommend you do so. Right. On from Widows to something quite different then. And that is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Now, I think it's reasonably widely known that Marvel's best character, that's fact, not opinion, <laughs> is the one which has stayed the most out with Disney's grasp as they've attempted to bring all of their properties back under one roof. You know, after all of Marvel's 
quite crazily scattershot approach to licensing in the 1980s, so, 1990s. I assume you're talking about Blade then. <laughs> <laughs> and of course I have you there. While Sony have inked some recent deals with the House of Mouse to allow the character to appear in the MCU, they don't seem keen on relinquishing their hold on the web slinger anytime soon. A result of this has been three different actors portraying three different incarnations of Spider-Man on the big screen in the last dozen years alone. And while the excellent Tom Holland has put to bed the memory of the underwhelming Andrew Garfield films, it's still a rather wearying number. So, naturally, Sony is countering this reboot on Wii with seven more incarnations of (laughs) Spider-Man in the same film. Okay, so that's deliberately disingenuous. But no, it's not unreasonable to be slightly concerned about it. Fortunately, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is not quite like unto the others. Firstly, it's an animated feature. And secondly, it's a sort of loving pastiche of the multiple spider-beings populating numerous alternate universes, timelines and time periods in the comics. While Peter Parker is here... Well, three of them actually Our heroes Miles Morales Played by Shemek Moore A gifted teenager unwilling Or afraid to fulfil his potential While out one night with his uncle Aaron Mahershala Ali Miles stumbles upon a secret underground experiment Being conducted by Liev Schreiber's kingpin And witnesses the death of Spider-Man at his hands Spidey charges Miles with shutting down Kingpin's experiment As it may end the universe So, you know, no pressure, kid. (laughs) After the requisite spider-bitey moment, and one of the funniest moments in a film full of them, Miles must come to terms with his newfound powers just as he needs to save the world. Fortunately, he's aided in this by the timely appearance of no less than five other spider-folk from alternate dimensions, and Lily Tomlin's kick-ass Aunt May, as Kingpin's experiment has ripped a hole in the fabric of reality, which is a bit inconvenient. As for the rest of the story, well, it goes much as you would expect it to, and there's nothing tremendously special about it. What is special, however, is just how funny and endearing it is. While there's clearly some gentle poking of fun at Marvel's seemingly endless alternate realities, it clearly comes from a place of affection and familiarity and leans into the very different takes, including Peter Porker, or Spider-Ham, though sadly not Spider-Pig, I am crushingly disappointed, Um, and the black and white Spider-Man noir. The unremarkable for comic book material story and a too-long action set-piece finale are the only slight knocks against an otherwise wholly entertaining film, and a wonderfully animated one at that. Indeed, I don't think I've seen anything quite like it, with a mix of styles including some almost photorealistic city shots, working together far better than they have any right to. There's also a really nice touch, seen sometimes in like a like a shimmer across the screen and sometimes in close-ups, that looks like the bendy dots and or pointillism of classic comic book printing, but it's not overused. The voice talent is also really good, with new girls Jake Johnson, Catherine Hahn and Hayley Steinfeld adding to the performances I mentioned earlier. Though it is the presence of one Mr. Nicholas Cage, who is A, in a good comic book film, and B, <laughs> giving a good performance and seemingly actually enjoying himself, that's the icing on the cake for me. Uh, quite frankly, it's an unexpected treat and very much worth checking out. Hmm. Interesting. I will now give this a look. I'd, uh, I'd automatically sorted this into the not going to bother with Karen uh, based on the number of 
awful Batman <laughs> cartoons that have come out recently, which everyone keeps going, oh no, this one's really good, it's a really great adaptation, and you watch it, and it's garbage. So, yeah. I've heard uh, bad things about things like the killing joke and yeah, stuff. absolutely just, dreadful. Uh, really highly regarded comic books that the adaptation just seems to be rotten, from mm-hmm. what I've heard. Again, I've avoided them too. Well, that sounds interesting. Um, I shall give it a go. Yeah, it's... I must admit, I was... I mean, the trailer looked reasonably entertaining, but I was a little put off by the presence of Phil Lord, who has done some good stuff, but, um, you know, mm. he's one of Lord Miller, and I really didn't care for the first Lego movie at all, which is kind of what really put him in mm-hmm. in the spotlight. But this, is, it's just really funny. And again, your mileage may vary for how tolerable you find the ending, but I think I've mentioned before that just action set pieces don't do a lot for me anymore um, even I go back and watch the old Bond films when they end like a 20 minute action set shootout in an oil rig or something like that. I just get <laughs> so bored back nowadays mm-hmm. I care much more about dialogue and character but it's it's just really funny and it's clearly somebody with real familiarity and you could so easily take the piss and the fact that I think it's is it Mad Magazine or something uh, Peter Porker from some like that, or Archie comics, or something like that, something I'm not familiar with, but um, and it should be ridiculous, <laughs> but again, they just lean into it and they just go with it. And the fact that Nicolas Cage's character is black and white when everybody else is in color and he can't see color, <laughs> which leads to some, a really great um joke with a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and it's just like it should just none of that should work together, but they just they just lean into it and kind of not quite tongue in cheek, but with a wee kind of a wee wink throughout it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's really nice. It's its funny and touching in places. Yeah, wonderfully animated. Uh, really, I, I was really surprised by it because I, I, I largely booked that ticket by mistake. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's next year, right? But oh, I've got it now. I'll go and watch it. Oh, this is really good. <laughs> I've got no real interest in <clears throat> most Marvel stuff. And although I used to watch um, the Spider-Man cartoon when I was younger, I've had yes. no sort of connection to that character since. However, I do have a small human being in my house he will be well I have a couple but I have one in particular who will be three in February um, and who is currently obsessed with Spider-Man and while I would suggest uh, I would imagine this is probably slightly too old for him uh, I will have a very good excuse to catch up with it soon enough Uh, and for once I'm actually based on everything that I've heard um, people whose opinions I trust say about it I'm quite looking forward to that for once yeah it was a real surprising but it's just it's a thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable film. I'm very pleased I saw that. Cool. Okay. So, given it's I've only I've seen that, there's little more to say about that just now. So, let's move on to... Sorry to bother you, Craig. Um. <laughs> Ten dry Jacob's crackers enter. <laughs> Four dry Jacob's crackers remain. <laughs> Give me a minute to wash this down. Do you frame all of your choices about eating things as some sort of Thunderdrome <laughs> arrangement? I do now. <laughs> so, I realised recently that there is a huge blind spot in my knowledge of African-American filmmakers. Uh, I discovered this thanks to Sorry to Bother You, the debut feature of writer-director Boots Riley, which I did not realise was his debut because A, I was adamant I had seen another of his films even though I couldn't name it. <laughs> And B, this is an incredibly individual and in many ways accomplished first feature. 
Sorry to bother you is a difficult film to surmise. <laughs> so I'm going to cause myself no end of a front and default to IMDb's stock synopsis, which states, In an alternate present-day version of Oakland, telemarketer Cassius Green discovers a magical key to professional success, propelling him into a universe of greed. Now, that is as good and succinct a summation <laughs> as I or anyone else to my knowledge has provided, the problem being that it doesn't explain the half of it. <laughs> Lakeith Stanfield, an actor I was adamant I had seen in other lead roles, even though I couldn't name them, is Cassius, a well-meaning young man with bills to pay and an aspiring artist girlfriend, Detroit. Tessa Thompson, who I can confirm I have seen in many other roles and can name them, who seems as though she may slip from his grasp uh, lest he get his act together. Starting his new job in telemarketing, Cassius is initially woefully unsuccessful and seems destined to workplace anonymity until colleague Langston, Danny Glover, tells him the secret of success. Using your white voice, which is to say quite literally adopting a Caucasian accent and mannerisms. Soon the clients are eating out of Cassius's hand and he rises swiftly through the ranks as an office hero and, ultimately, a power seller. Power sellers are the international telemarketers who broker inter-business multi-million dollar deals and while it certainly brings him financial gain and corporate kudos, Cassius soon finds himself distanced from his friends who, on the floors below, are organising a revolt against the oppression of their workplace. If that all sounds somewhat plausible, then what you need to know about Sorry to Bother You is that it absolutely is, but at the same time, absolutely is not. <laughs> what we haven't touched on yet is the surrealism, of which there is a great deal, uh, and it is this which sets the movie apart from its peers. In tackling a well-worn message of I presume broadly corporate oppression of the individual. Uh, sorry to bother you mixes elements of something like office space with visual and narrative cues that crib from the works of Michelle Gondry uh, and that ilk. The result is an undeniably unique take on a tale as old as capitalism, though that's not to say I found it without flaw. Taking the example of the white voice device, Riley takes the bold route of giving his characters an obvious overdub, and the effect is both immediate and striking in how succinctly it speaks to a broad distrust of black voices in white Western society. Point well made. If I have any quarrel with this device, it's that it eventually outstays its welcome, transitioning from a fresh concept to stayed by the time the characters involved have caused to drop the veneer. Likewise, narratively, Riley runs things into the ground somewhat in a final act that takes the surrealist principles so far deployed all the way up to 11 and then on to 12, <laughs> at which point the wings fall off. I got really frustrated thinking about this movie over the following days, as there is, to my mind, 70% of an age-defining work of art here that feels like it squanders the remaining 30% in a daft, intentional slice into the rough. <laughs> Having said that, as I read through some of the deserved critical praise bestowed upon his efforts, I also wondered whether or not the real purpose of Riley's work was to demonstrate that, like Jordan Peele achieved with Get Out, a black filmmaker can appropriate a white voice through devices we have traditionally associated with non-black writers and directors. Caveat, I make that statement knowing full well I have, as previously stated, little to no frame of reference in terms of African-American filmmakers. If that is the case, then, again, it's a point brilliantly made. Either way, while I am in no way in love with Sorry to Bother You, I do deeply admire its ambitions and I am genuinely excited to see what Riley does next. Yeah, if you'd stopped me an hour into this film, I would probably be saying this is the best film of the year. Mm -hmm. um, it was incredibly enjoyable and hugely individual and a, a beautiful film in a number of regards. And 
yeah, really enjoyable. Uh, the, my only real absolute complaint is, as you mentioned, that it's about what at least twenty minutes too long. The, the the last act needed to move a lot faster than it did, and it sort of yeah. lingers around a bit and sort of took a little bit of the shine off it for me. I think some people may get a little bit upset with its politics, not the context of it, but it is it is all text and no subtext. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> insert the Garth, Garth Marenghi clip. I, I know authors who use subtext and they're all cowards. Um, this, <laughs> this sometimes gets to the point where it may actually be genuinely asking the question, what if people were turned into horses? That's not a question <laughs> anyone else has answered and that's why he's brave to, ans- to ask it. But even with that, even with a, a last act that's sort of dragging a little bit down, um, I still hugely enjoyed it. It's certainly one of the most remarkable, individual, distinctive films you've seen this year, which by itself is enough to automatically recommend that anyone should go and watch it. Um, yeah. um, and overall, I think even if that with the shine taken off a little bit, I'd still say I, I really enjoyed it. It's still one of the most remarkable things I've seen this year. Yeah, minor quibbles aside, uh, certainly be overly uh, interested in seeing what com- what it comes up with next. It's um, it's definitely individual and distinctive. And uh, yeah, I have no problem with the politics, even if, yeah, as you say, Scott, it's, it's very much on the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a critique of late capitalism. Uh, in Boots Riley, I've heard him say that, yeah, he's basically a communist. So again, a more Marxist communist rather, you know, Stalinist or anything, but, you know, basically <laughs> a communist. Fortunately. I'm not so gulaggy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. Less genocide, yes. more, <laughs> you know, um, sharing the wealth sort of thing. More seize the means of uh, production sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah, and the the whole kind of white voice thing, that, that, that does wear a bit. And it's, but it's it's less, it's not so much white voices, because I wouldn't say those voices are particularly white. It's more like, maybe like white people think they should sound, but mm. it doesn't necessarily detract from the idea that, you know, Black voices um, and what's the, there's an actual f- um, term for it. I think it's um, American African American dialect or something like that. Um, the dialect that a lot of black people in the United States speak in is yes, yeah, distru- it's distrusted um, in this you know, these recent times that have thoroughly disproved that we're in a post racial era. era. Uh, that all of those things are true. That like it makes valid points. It's distinctive. Um, but my God, was this a chore to watch? <laughs> I did not enjoy this film at all. Mm. Um, I, it was marketed as a comedy, and I mm. think I laughed twice, which really pissed me off. I hate that um, mismarketing. Unless it just it just wasn't funny to me. But um, I, I just I found it such a chore to watch. I wasn't enjoying it at all. Mm. Um, so I've, sad to say I was thoroughly disappointed by this. I mean I'm interested enough in Boots Riley's work now to go on I mean I like Michelle Gondry's stuff too Michelle Gondry's actually name checked in this in this film is well, he? So, you know when Army Hammer shows him the film yes and it says it's a film by Michelle Grondy or something mm. like that but it's mm. clearly Michelle Gondry but deliberately misspelled I think I'd kind of phased out a little bit <clears throat> at that point um, so I mean, there are bits, and I wonder on a different day when I actually I was quite tired when I watched this, um, and I was sort of almost falling asleep. Whether I may have got more of it on a different day, but yeah, I say it really it was a chore for me to watch. But I'm interested enough in Boots Riley that I will look out for his work in the future. Yeah, 
I've, I probably err more on the side of your opinion than Scott Street. I probably sit somewhere in the middle. I do agree that the first hour of this is pretty compelling, but I became completely disinterested in the second hour and found it a chore very much like you did, Drew. Um, and I didn't laugh out as loud as I thought I might have done although I appreciated the value of what was happening in front of me. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of craft in it. And again, I'm really excited to see what Butch Riley does next. And I found myself I found myself thinking, well, perhaps this isn't a film that's aimed at me. And then I realised that was a really silly, loaded thing to say, because anything which has a racial context to it is probably by definition aimed at <laughs> aimed at me regardless because if I'm if I'm not on the side of the characters in the film I need to understand their viewpoint from my side of that fence whether or not I'm happy with that fence existing um, and whether or not I perceive it myself this is a black filmmaker who's trying to tell me something as a white person and that just made me realise all sorts of things about actually what a, what a gaping hole there is in my knowledge and I realised that any assumption I was going to make about this film in the context of film in generally was going to be woefully underinformed, um, and I probably need to I probably need to do a bit more research and watch a lot more films by contemporary black filmmakers before I can put this in any kind of context in, in that sense. So, but I mean, just on the face of it, there is enough evidence here that Butch Riley will have some very interesting films uh, ahead of him, uh, because I would assume, given the critical reaction to this, that he's not going to have any problems getting his next project bankrolled, whatever that might be. And I will be, yes, I will be genuinely interested to see what that is and uh, and what he does with it. Yeah. Um, can I just ask you two something? Just, uh, maybe you'd want to cut this out, I'm not sure if it's really relevant. But Oil of Ole twice a day. I thought Venom was all right. <laughs> um, was there some point to the guy with the eye patch? Well, was there any point to his eye patch? Probably not. But was there any point to his name being both beat and the mouth blurred? I kind of missed, I didn't understand what that was. No. If it was in reference to anything. In honesty, Drew, I'd forgotten all about it. Um, other than it being a sort of... Well, I took it as a joke and it didn't really take much past that, if I'm honest. I don't think, I don't think it had any deeper meaning unless I'm missing something. Okay. But, yeah, no, okay. couldn't, couldn't think of it. Um, I wouldn't have considered a joke because I said I didn't find this fun film funny. Um, but, uh, yes, yeah, I, I didn't know whether maybe it was like a reference to something that I wasn't getting, but... Not that I'm, aw- not that I'm aware of. <laughs> Uh, yeah, unless he just didn't want to call him Mr Magritte because he was wearing a bowler hat and wearing with an apple but other than that I'm not sure <laughs> um, Okay, uh, rather mixed opinions on that one that's interesting uh, So we'll go on to something which is considerably more mainstream for all that that entails, Scott, mm-hmm. with The Crimes of Grindelwald Yes, now I wouldn't blame you if you'd forgotten how Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them ended a couple of years back, but it shockingly revealed that evil wizard Grindelwald, played by Johnny Depp, had been at large in Corrin Farrell's body before being arrested to disinterested shrugs of all involved. The cr- oh, also, the other bit of the way it ended was they pressed a massive reset button, largely undercutting the entire film. <laughs> yes. Uh, the crimes of Grindelwald waste no time in breaking Grindelwald out of Chucky, releasing him to the pre-World War II world to do, well, not all that much, as it turns out. He's, it's not just me that thought that. Thank no. you. That's good. He's, he's fled to Paris and sets about attracting a cadre of like-minded white suprem- sorry, wizard supremacists, <laughs> couching their language and concerns for the non-magical folk's increasing capacity for self-destruction but behind closed doors seeking dominion. Who should face up to this threat? Jude Law's Dumbledore? Probably, but he can't, for reasons of no interest to all but the Potter lore obsessives. The appropriate authorities? 
Probably, but they can't because mumble, 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 look over there, a shiny thing. A magical zookeeper. Yes, fetch Eddie Redmayne's newt Scooby-Dooby. <laughs> <laughs> the flimsiness of the rationale for dispatching him to Paris is rivaled only by the reasons for having Alison Sudol's Queenie Goldstein and Dan Fogler's Jacob uh, Kowalski showing back up. And if you think those were flimsy, just wait until you get to the reasons that they break apart or indeed to the introduction of Voldemort Snake, who is a Korean lady here. Please don't ask. My, my main issue with the first Fantastic Beast film was that the story was barely more than a fag packet sketch that could be summed up as Grindelwald exists. My main issue with this outing is that exactly the same summation applies and it's very hard to see this as anything other than a lazy cash-in or at the most forgiving possible look at it, a gratingly drawn out version of what should have been the first act in whatever the next film winds up being, assuming that one has a plot worth discussing. Now, it's not fair to say that it's entirely a repeat of the last film. Rowling's taken some inspiration from the Star Wars Disneyverse by stuffing in pointless references to past works to gain some fuzzy nostalgic feels. Do you remember Nicholas Flamel? Have you craved an on-screen presence for him? Well, your long nightmare is finally over, you lone weirdo, but I can't imagine anyone other, anyone else caring in the slightest. I most yeah, certainly forced. As for the rest of it, well, it's a thing that was in front of my eyeballs for somewhere north of two hours, at least half an hour too long, that's put together well enough mechanically that it wasn't actually a dull experience. David Yates and co have been at the Wizarding Grindstone often enough to know how this sort of thing goes with decent enough CG and all that jazz, and the actors, even the allegedly me 2 a ones like Johnny Depp, do what's asked of them well enough. They're let down by a script from Rowling that's, well barely present, with characters so unmemorable that I had an argument on the way out of the cinema with my wife on whether Ezra Miller's character was actually in the first film and he was the entire point of the first film, which... (laughs) What's actually the point about Ezra Miller, though? Because I'm watching that thinking, okay, I remember this character, but I don't remember it being him. It is, he must have had a haircut or something, but yeah. So it just undermines the unmemorability of the central premise of that film, which sadly continues into this, this one. It's all gathering clouds with no release of thunderstorm and lots of rowling stomping around saying I am making a clever allegory without actually having anything happen again, all text, no subtext I know authors that use subtext they're all cowards (laughs) (laughs) Three pertinent reasons why I will never watch this film, right? (laughs) A, I saw the trailer for it well, casting aside the fact I haven't seen the first one uh, I saw the trailer and Eddie Redmayne's default mannerisms and dialogue delivery make my skin crawl. See that kind of slight tilt of his head all the time, I just want to punch him. That and the sort of like ineffectual Secondly, I have no reason to doubt Amber Heard and I think we all know what Johnny Depp's crimes are and thirdly I can't be doing with this bollocks All fair comment. Um, I would disagree slightly. I think Eddie Redmayne's Doctor Who knockoff is by himself all right because I find Red, uh, Redmayne quite a likeable actor. Uh, but yeah, he's bumbling around in situations of such grave import that it's just this weird, unsatisfying clash. It's a series that seems like it should be a mild-mannered, socially awkward guy having wacky adventures with far-fetched magical animals and it's been hammered into the shape of an anti-fascist Rise of the Nazis analogy that's just forced to the point of shattering. <laughs> he should be a magical Doctor Doolittle. Yeah. It's just a, and nothing more. It's a bad idea. It's really poorly yeah, observed. He should occasionally express disdain at the topping on his crumpet. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, this... You mentioned about the Star Wars thing, so that's a good analogy because, I mean, I've... I always thought, much as um, there have been bits of the Harry Potter things that I've enjoyed, I always thought the world never made sense. It always felt too small. 
Like, mm. you know, there, there's like one school in the whole country. Mm-hmm. And well, that means everybody that's there works in the government because the number of people that apparently work in the government. So, uh, <laughs> it's so as, it, as you know, Drew, every, every Tory in the land will agree with you. <laughs> so there yeah, is only the logistics, one school. um, never made sense of the world, always felt small, kind of literally small. Not, um, but then, yet, she's very much with her screenplay gone down the Star Wars route of making the universe seem small because everybody's bumping into everybody else who knows anybody. Yeah, and I hate that. I really that, hate that, that sort of thing. Also, just feels to me like a really cheap attempt at layering on, um, not necessarily depth, but a, a sense that this was all intended to be um, a single, a single world, and it was all conceived at the same time. As opposed, it was to always just, going to be a trilogy. <laughs> yes, I don't. I don't need to write any more of these books. Oh. I remembered I quite like money. <laughs> yeah, so the first film was a pretty flimsy thing, but and also just sorry, I'm realizing there's another Star Wars kind of connection. Now it feels like it too because Ezra Miller's character and the importance it's given to him does feel a bit kind of Anakin Skywalker, midi chlorine Virgins mm. in the Force nonsense. That um, and the acting quality is about as good between Ezra Miller and Jake Lloyd. So there's that <laughs> um, because but Ezra Miller's awful. But really awful. Hmm. All right, and we need to talk about Kevin. Must have been the one time he's ever acted because <laughs> everything else I've seen him in is appalling. Um, but yeah, it's and you're talking. About just, yeah, it's so it's so very clearly backfilling um, on what has been established before. It's like, well, Dumbledore can't go to fight them. Why? Well, because in the first book she wrote, she said that Dumbledore didn't fight until 1947, so they've got a time, so they need to go, uh, why can't he fight him now? Um, um, quick, look over there. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, she kind of written herself into a corner there and it's trying to desperately trying to, God, it is so like Star Wars, because <laughs> the, that was exactly the same problem with the prequels. I just wish uh, people would stop calling J.K. Rowling a master storyteller. She's clearly not. If no. J.K. Rowling were a master storyteller, what she would do as a spin-off is she would, she would take one of the sort of, um, one of one of the muggle families and write a compelling kitchen sink drama about them <laughs> with no magic in it whatsoever. That's what a master storyteller would be able to do. Oh, look over there, something flashing coming well, out of a wand. Yeah. Of course, she tried um, that as a sort of what a pen name she used in the book wasn't really doing very well, so it was leaked to the press that uh, was mm. it Sam Goldthwaite or something Robert like that? Galbraith. that yeah. Galbraith. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Robert actually, Galbraith, yeah. Rowling. All of a sudden, it was successful overnight. Not sure how that happened, but uh, hmm. yeah. curiously, not critically <laughs> successful. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, I mean, like um, from Bagman. It's just also an arsehole. So <laughs> yeah, but from, <laughs> from quibbles with this film, it, it's not actually. Bad. It's just aggressively mediocre, um, and yeah, I, I, that's a good way to put it. I just don't see the point for anyone outside of the, like a hardcore Potter obsessive. This is not building a fan base of new fans to it. It's uh, yeah. it's purely fan service for the people that are already there. I mean, there, there are some bits that like, and uh, I mean, as much as I'm kind of fed up of everything being CJ because it's still. There's still, for most films, it still looks not real. And there's that horrible CGI that everything CGI seems to have. And I can tell. I can always tell. Who, um, who is the market for these films? Because my wife is as Harry Potter as they come, to the point where she's got several signed first editions, which, which I really want her to sell now. <laughs> um, and even she has expressed little to no interest in any of these movies. I don't have the answer to that, other than maybe it's a pitch for the, the people that grew up with Harry Potter are now probably old enough to have their own families now, and perhaps that's who she's hoping will be brought in as, oh, hey kids, why don't you go and see this new film that's uh, 
based on yeah. the stuff we makes, used to read. It makes sense because the first book was released in 1997, so mm. yeah, it's 21 years, so absolutely could have their own families now. It's, um, mm. and you know, the it's the fact that Warner Brothers just want to make more money, obviously. Yes, obviously. Um, well, anyway. They want to be the next Disney, but... Well, so is, um, the, is there a good excuse for a cinematic universe? And I'm sure they just backed up a dump truck full of money to Rowling's house and said, here, have at it. And um, she, <laughs> what she, she needs provided. more money. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but listen, they're like... There's still some quite good effects work, and there were like some nice things, like the kind of Chinese dragon kind of creature. Yeah. Almost like doing a kind of puss in boots, some Shrek effect on his <laughs> eyes, and it's like there were some like nice bits like that, and there were nice moments, but as the whole, the whole thing's just kind of meh. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you said too, Scott, earlier about like up until the end when he starts becoming kind of it becomes Nuremberg rather like. Like, what what are the crimes of Grindelwald supposed to be apart from the fact you know he's barely in the film yeah. the crimes of Grindelwald actually, Grindelwald more or less isn't in and he doesn't do any crimes up until <laughs> sort of at the end and like it's uh, okay well, yeah. let's see what's the maybe that's okay maybe he decided he couldn't do the time <laughs> <laughs> don't give away the title to the next one yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh dear. But I mean, of course, the most pressing question raised in this film is exactly what point did Dumbledore switch over from sharp three piece suits to fabulously bejeweled bathrobes as acceptable daywear? Because it's <laughs> very different change in outfit between this, this and the uh, previous yeah, films. That's, that's a good point, because in the other films, he's very much sort of your typical wizard with the whole wizarding robes and things, yes. and this is just businessman. Yes. Well, times change. It's like, it's, like, it's like when you would obviously you would be used to seeing George Michael sort of absolutely immaculately presented, um, and then in the tabloid press he would just be bombing about in a three-stripe Adidas tracksuit, <laughs> <laughs> albeit black and gold. So Dumbledore was in Wham. Is that what we're saying? Makes as much sense. Yeah, else. in the in the cinematic universe of Harry Potter and all that jazz, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and Grindelwald's Andrew Vigili and that's why they split up <laughs> the most ambitious crossover project in cinematic history <laughs> <laughs> oh no what is this rabbit hole right <laughs> I refuse to go down it guess that'll bring us to an end I suppose yes um, we have some feedback on this episode Scott I believe we did so at Sonic Yoda uh, says of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was a genuine surprise a lot of heart some great humour and characterisation and a surprising focus on black culture that made it feel fresh and inclusive big tugs on the old heart sings as well very special yeah, it seems we're largely in accord there, which is nice. Matt Toller, at M. Toller. Uh, no fan of the first one. He hated Ralph Breaks the Internet. 90 minutes worth of Sarah Silverman's little girl voice clawing at my skull should have been outlawed <laughs> by the Geneva Convention. I can probably get on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't massively bother me, but I can absolutely see why that would grate on you. Mm. I think one film of that was enough. Mm-hmm. And Perpetual Dumb Machine, at Blake Wrights of the I'm the Host podcast, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I've seen likened to their last film, Hail Caesar is a movie critiquing the film industry and I've generally read it the same way it's probably the best vignette based movie I've seen in a good while although what's with the bracketing parallelism throughout 
What's with the what, sorry? Parallelism. Each vignette oh. seemed to start and end with the same image mirrored, but the stories themselves seemed to have parallel themes, symbols and elements based on the order they occurred. One in six, two in five, and three in four. But I need to rewatch that to see if there's a significance there, and that is beyond my pay grade. I'm just a dummy who watches films and goes, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I skipped over. Uh, it also says, sorry to bother you. He loved for his playful aesthetic and dark sense of humour, although it felt very heavy-handed by the end. Yes, indeed, very much wearing its politics on its sleeve. Not that he sees any real errors in the critique of US race relations recapitalism. It's just that it's so direct that his message might be rejected as didactic. Mm. I can't argue with that. Yep. And then, Teacup Tweet. Uh, a new contributor, if you've seen that name. Oh, Lizzie. One of my former colleagues. Hello, thank you for contacting us. She said that, Hey, I enjoyed Bohemian Rhapsody. Didn't really go expecting much and was pleasantly surprised. Likewise, uh, saw Scruggs this weekend. Maybe wasn't fully paying attention to get the short story straight away, but was pretty good. Want to see Ralph and Grindelwald soon after Aquaman. Um, <laughs> you took a dog leg there, Lizzie. <laughs> uh, I don't know, um, I sort of want to see Aquaman because I think Jason Momoa is quite interesting, charismatic, but the dialogue looks absolutely honking mm. from the trailers I've seen. I'm, I do want to see it purely because from the trailers it did look like the first comic book film in a while where they've actually played up to the, well, mm. if we're going to go all CG in, then we might as well do something spectacular and different with it and all the underwater stuff from the trailer looked really cool um, and yep. I would like to see some more of that. So I, I will give that a go if I can get to it. They've got freaking half shark, half tank things, man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So that will uh, round us up for today, I think. If you would like to get in touch, please do so. You can do so on Twitter at FudsOnFilm, Facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or indeed the old emails podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. And yeah, yeah, we'll be back soon enough with some more film-related chat. But until then, it's a goodbye from me, and I'm sure it's a goodbye from them. Goodbye. Fare thee well. One cracker left. Goes back to race relations. <laughs> <laughs>